Praise the Lord. Christ alone is the source of our strength. Before we go to our Bible study for today, I want to invite you to join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for worshiping you today in song, in prayer, in stories. And now as we turn to the Bible, we pray for your guidance and your blessing. We ask, Lord, for this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. So the topic that we have for today is entitled, Who is the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? It's a very, should I say, maybe difficult topic, interesting topic. Now, as always, I want to remind you all the studies we have done yet are found here in Dubai um, on our, um, what, online uh, Bible school. You can go to dubaiadventist.org slash amazing facts. You can also go to Anchor FM, SEA Church, and you can listen to all the previous um, studies that we have done together. Now, let's dive in right into our message. The first question that we want to talk about today is what is the meaning of the word Antichrist? Now, I want to tell you something. Um, the way the order of topics that I'm dealing with is not exactly the way that you find it in the lesson by Amazing Facts. The context, the content is pretty much the same, but the way it is ordered and presented is different. Why? Well, because that's just the way I like to do it. <laughs> so if you want to see the way they like to do it, go through their website, get the guide and go through it. But this is the way that I feel is more logical, maybe even easier to grasp and understand. So the first question that I want to present to you today is what is the meaning of the word Antichrist? Now, the answer is in the word itself. The Greek term is anti-Christos, and uh, that particle anti can have two translations. Anti could mean against, it could be against, but it could also be instead of. So when you're talking about an antichrist, it could be, according to the language, something that is against Christ but it could also be something that is instead of Christ. So let's see what the Bible tells about this Antichrist. So how is the term used in the Bible? The word Antichrist is actually used only by one author in the Bible, and that is the Apostle John. He uses the word Antichrist four times in his epistles, three times in 1 John and one time in 2 John. So let's read together. I want to invite you. You need to have your Bible. Always you need to have your Bible. But especially if you're interested in this topic and you want to be able to follow along, I want to invite you have your Bible, maybe have a little uh, notebook and pencil so you can take notes and uh, later you can go over it because when we deal with prophecy this is not so simple it, it takes a little of brain and, and study to go over these things so at least you should have your bible much better if you have pen and paper so you can take some notes so the word antichrist where is it used what does it mean first john chapter 2 verse 18 dear children this is the last hour and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, I want you to notice several things here. First, um, John says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So this is not a teaching that he invented. This is not something that he developed. He is just telling people, you know that the Antichrist is coming because we have been told about it already. And I want to tell you, that um, he also mentions there is the Antichrist, but then he also talks about many Antichrists. So according to this first use in the, in the letter of John, the Antichrist is something not new. It can be one individual or one thing because it talks about the Antichrist, but it also talks about many Antichrists. So it has both 
um, aspects. It could be one person, but it could be many people having the same intent as that one person or that one institution or that one thing. Now, the second uh, place in which John mentions the word Antichrist is in chapter 2 and verse 22 of his first letter. He says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So here John begins to explain what the attitude or the belief of the Antichrist is. And here it doesn't seem that this person is against Christ, but it means it might be supplanting Christ or changing Christ somehow or, or speaking things that are not true about Christ. So whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised, that person is a liar. And also whoever denies that there is a father and there is a son and Jesus is that son, then that's the the Antichrist, according to this verse here in John. So we can begin to see some of the characteristics that the Bible associates with this concept of the Antichrist. Let's look at another text. Let us look at another text. First John chapter four, verses one to three. Here it says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So here John is making now a connection between Antichrist and false prophets. Between the, those who have the spirit of the Antichrist are those who are false prophets. Prophets, And he is not only talking about false prophets, but he is also saying whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah and he came in the flesh, uh, this person is having the spirit of the Antichrist. So from this passage, then it seems that the Antichrist would actually be maybe a spiritual being. And as you think about it, well, the ultimate Antichrist, the ultimate person who is against Christ, or the ultimate person who wants to supplant Christ is the devil. So on that part, we can be clear already. But then John is telling us that many people have the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the devil. They are guided by the enemy of God. Now let's continue moving. Now in the second letter of John, chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, this is the fourth usage of the word Antichrist in the Bible. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the father and the son. So here John is talking about again repeating that you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and he came in the flesh and that belief will also go together in knowing that God the Father sent his son. Whoever is is denying this teaching has left true Christianity and this John says he is a deceiver. He is an Antichrist. So that's the way John puts the teaching of the Antichrist. Now, who taught about the Antichrist before John? Because he says, you have heard from the beginning that Antichrist is coming. So who was the first person who be- to begin speaking about Antichrist? If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24 and verse 24, Jesus speaks and he says, for false messiahs, And false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, remember that John himself already made a connection between between Antichrist and false prophets. And here we can see where John came up with that connection. He didn't. 
it was Jesus. And Jesus talks about false messiahs, pseudo Christoi, uh, false Christs, and false prophets, pseudo prophetai, false prophets. And it is Jesus who initially taught about false messiahs, pseudo Christos, and uh, false prophets, pseudo prophetai. And then John takes that word and he doesn't use the word false, but he used the word anti. It's sort of the same thing. Somebody who is supplanting Christ, who is working against Christ, is a false Messiah. And then not only Jesus talked about this, but also Paul. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, it's talking about the coming of the Lord, the last day, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul here goes a bit of step ahead and he talks a bit more descriptively about this Antichrist. He says he sets himself up above everything that is called God. He makes himself in God's temple. He proclaims himself to be God. He continues saying in verses 9 to 10, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the with how Satan works. So again, the spirit of the Antichrist, this person has that spirit because Satan and the Antichrist, it, it's the same spirit. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So John did not invent the concept of the Antichrist. Jesus had already warned about false Christ. Paul had already warned about this man of lawlessness who has the spirit of Satan and who exalts himself. Now the logical question is, well, why would Jesus and his disciples predict the coming of such apostasy before the end of the world? Why would Jesus, John, Paul, why would the early Christians believe that this thing would happen? Now, there is a long answer and there is a short answer. And I'm lazy, so I'll just give you the short answer. The short answer is Bible prophecy. Um, Jesus speaks about the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel the prophet spoke about. So Jesus knew the prophecies and, and the apostles knew the prophecies. And last week we were talking about how in the book of Daniel we have such an outline of history in daniel 2 you have a statue in daniel chapter 7 you have several beasts in daniel chapter 8 you have now animals clean animals but all of them present the same outline of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom until it is time for the kingdom of god so as we come specifically to daniel chapter 7 and 8 I want to read to you some things that you will see, oh, that's why Jesus was talking about the Antichrist and Paul. And then we will dive into Daniel chapter 7 to see more what these things mean. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8 talks, uh, says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes, like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now in the explanation of the vision, then we read the 10 horns are 10 kings who will become, who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the most high and oppress his holy people. Try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Does it look to you like this power is opposing Christ? And does it look to you that somehow this power is even um, substituting Christ? Well, I think so. And that's the definition of Antichrist. In chapter 8, we read, chapter 8, verses 10 to 12, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. 
It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down because of rebellion. The Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. Truth was thrown to the ground. Verses 23 and 25, same chapter 8. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a stand in devastation, will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause the seed to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So again, in Daniel chapter 8, we find this figure who is against Christ and who is instead of Christ. He even goes against the prince of prince and you know who that is. So again, we are talking about Antichrist. The word is not used. But the concept is there. So today we are going to be spending the rest of our time in Daniel chapter 7. So we talked about two passages in Daniel chapter 7. And we also mentioned a couple of passages in Daniel chapter 8. But we will not deal with Daniel chapter 8 today. We will do that in another lesson in lesson 18. Today we will spend the rest of our time trying to unpack what Daniel 7 says about the Antichrist power. Question number five, as chapter seven begins, Daniel sees four beasts coming up out of the sea. In prophecy, what does a beast represent? What does the sea represent? Sorry, I didn't show you the slide as I was reading. So what is this first beast that is shown in Daniel chapter seven? The answer is given in verses 17 and 23. Four great beasts are four kings that will arise from the earth. And then it says, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all other kingdoms, will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. So at the beginning, the prophecy says, the angel says that there are four beasts who are four kings but then when talking about the fourth beast in particular, it says it is a kingdom. So here we get the Bible explaining the Bible. When in the prophecy you see a kingdom is not necessarily a king. Sorry, when you see a king is not necessarily an individual. It is a kingdom. The beast is representing a kingdom, not just the king, but his domain. And how about the waters? Well, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, we read the waters you saw where the prostitute seats are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So again, if you read, if you let the Bible interpret the Bible, you see that the symbol of waters in prophecies are meaning peoples, lots of people. So you have in Daniel chapter 7, Four kingdoms coming up one after the other, and they arise from peoples, quite naturally. Now, question number six. What is the first beast of Daniel chapter seven? For that, we go to verses two to four. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had three wings, the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. If you have been paying attention to our services in the past few weeks, you know that this first kingdom is Babylon. Why is it Babylon? Well, because Daniel chapter 7 is just an elaboration of chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we have been already told that the first kingdom represents Babylon. It's written in chapter 2 and verse 38. Also, the lion was 
sort of the the lion with wings was sort of the symbol of the neo babylonian empire if you look on the internet for the ishtar gate of the neo babylonian um city you will see lots of pictures of lions with wings and it's obviously a symbol of the kingdom of babylon but how about the second beast what kingdom does the second beast represent here again we go to the bible verse 5 we read there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear and was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth it was told get up and eat your fill of flesh now what could this beast be again we let the bible interpret the bible chapter 2 chapter 7 and chapter 8 are giving us the same outline of powers one after the other and in daniel chapter 8 we are told that that ram is given a name and that name is medo persia in verse 20 sorry i'm talking here i'm not showing you the graphic you can see that the when you get to chapter Eight, the first uh, beast, which is the second in the list, but as time had advanced, the first is not mentioned. Um, the ram is Medo-Persia. And uh, yes, in history, you can see that the Medes came first. The Persians came later, but they were stronger. And that's why this bear is higher on one side than the other. And the Bible has identified for us. It is Medo-Persian. It, it came after the Neo-Babylonian Empire. How about the third beast? What does it represent? We read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 6. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. If you know anything about history, you know that after the Persians came the Greek Empire, and the first king, Alexander the Great, he conquered with extreme um, speed. So this animal has four wings. Um, it's moving very, very fast. But after Alexander the Great, his kingdom was divided into four. His four generals when he died unexpectedly. Now, the same thing we are told in the Bible in Daniel chapter 8. We are told that the goat, the second um, animal presented is actually a symbol for Greece. So again, the Bible has been explaining things for us. Now, how about that fourth beast? What does the fourth beast represent? We go to verse seven. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had hard it it had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled on their foot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. Now what global power came from Babylon to Persians to Greeks that was very powerful and then eventually also had ten horns, ten divisions. Well, that's a pretty accurate description of the Roman Empire. And uh, in every single chapter, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, you have that fourth power. In Daniel 2 is the iron. In chapter 7 is the beast with the ten horns. In chapter 8 is the little horn moving horizontally. And uh, it is not named in the Bible on Lake Unlike Babylon, unlike um, Persia, unlike Greece, uh, the fourth kingdom is not named, but it is described. Now, the Roman Empire, when it fell on the western, the western side of the Roman Empire, it divided into roughly ten kingdoms, and and any any book of history will tell you that. So you had some um, states like the Visigoths, the Anglo Saxons, the Franks, the Alemanni the Burgundians, the Lombards, the Suevi, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals. Now, these became the countries that we now recognize in Europe. Some of those kingdoms did not um, persist in history, and we will see very soon why they stopped existing. But then, what does the Bible say would happen after 
Rome comes um, because it talks about a beast, but it also talks about 10 horns. And then it actually talks about a little one. Verse eight, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the fur horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, a mouth that spoke boastfully. So we have Rome divided into 10. And then from Rome, from those 10 divisions, we have one thing that comes up, eliminates three of the ones that were already there and begins to speak boastfully. Now, how else is this little horn described? The explanation comes in verses 24 and 25. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people, try to change set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. So, so far, when we look at this little horn power, we have been given some characteristics, and I want to sum it up for you. In the lesson by Amazing Facts, you have 10 things. Yes, that's good, but I like to simplify it, so I made it five for you. Five characteristics of the little horn power so that we can identify this. First thing is that it came up among them, among the horns, among the 10 horns, but it was somehow different. Second, three horns were uprooted before it. It subdues three kingdoms. Third, oppresses the holy people of God and they are delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. Fourth, it has the eyes of a human being, the mouth that speaks boastfully against the most high. Number five, it tries to change the set times and the laws. So we will try to see which power in history fits this description because we have been talking about first Babylon and then Greece, uh, sorry, and then Medo-Persia and then Greece and then something that is very powerful. So what is that something? Well, if you know a bit of history, you will notice that the uh, Eastern Roman, the Western Roman Empire divided roughly into 10 kingdoms that we still have today. Uh, the Franks uh, and, and, you know, the, the Germans. These are all ancient tribes that still exist until today. So it came up from among the ten horns, but it was somehow different. These other kingdoms were just political figures, but this little horn is somehow different. It's not just a regular kingdom. Now, if you noticed after the Roman, after the pagan Roman Empire, after the Western Rome fell, there was one remain. And even the title for the emperor in Rome, uh, Pontifex Maximus, that was a title that this new king um, maintained. And that was the papacy. When, when you look at the papacy, it, it came up in Europe but it was different. It was from the time. It came at the right time in history, but it was somehow different. Now, another characteristic is that this little horn was going to uproot three horns or three kingdoms before it. So did the papacy do that? Well, the answer is yes. As you look in history, the heralds, the vandals, the Ostrogoths, they were um, little by little eliminated all these kingdoms were Aryan, Aryan kingdoms. What is Arianism? Arianism is a belief that Jesus was created, that Jesus was not God, that he was created, he had an origin. And so these kingdoms were Aryan kingdoms, and uh, the Christian church did not believe that. The Christian church believed, no, Jesus is God. But since the Christian church was also a political power, then the Christian church was enforcing its beliefs by force. The belief was correct. Jesus is God. Yes. Okay, good. They didn't believe that. They believed that he was some, some, somehow a lesser God. He was created. And because they didn't believe, they were killed. Now, we do not agree with that. 
And Jesus would not agree with that. Um, yes, the truth is the truth, but we do not enforce the truth by the sword. And the Christian church of that time did enforce sometimes the truth, sometimes falseness, falsehood by the sword. Um, now, the third characteristic of this little horn is that the Bible says it oppresses the people of God and they are delivered into his hands for time, times and half a time. And you could be saying, what on earth? What's this time, times and half a time? And I could say with you, what on earth? Well, this is a good time for us to let the Bible explain itself. When you go to Daniel chapter four, you find that there is a story about Nebuchadnezzar and he is told that seven times will pass on him until he recovers his mind and he recovers his kingdom. And uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, also for Josephus, an early Jewish historian, and for Jewish commentators in general, these times are to be understood as years. So, okay, a time is a year. These are seven years. But how about those two times? We know a little bit, but we don't know much yet. Now, the phrase is also used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. We are trying to let the Bible interpret itself. The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. The same phrase is used but we still don't know more about it. But we do know a little bit more about it. Because in the Hebrew language, the word for time is not the same word as in Daniel chapter 7. But the phrase is the same. So we get to understand that this is some symbolic language for something. You have one of something, two of something, one of something. Here the word that is translated as time is actually the word season. So it will be for a season, seasons, and half a season. What on earth? Be patient. The Bible is explaining itself. Now, that very same... Remember, the Bible from Hebrew was translated into Greek. The way that the Greek language reads in Daniel chapter uh, 12 and verse 7 is the very same phrase that is used in our next text, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14. The woman was given the two wings of an eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And now you will tell me, okay, pastor, very good. The phrase is used, but it's not explained. We still don't know what this time, times, and half a time mean. But we are so close. Because in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6, we finally see what the thing means. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And here we say, aha, yes, the Bible explained itself. Finally, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14, we are told that the woman flees and she is taken care of for time, times and half a time. And then in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6, we are told, she flees to the wilderness and she's taken care of by 1,260 days. So at least now we know that according to the Bible, time, times, and half a time is equivalent to 1,260 days. We don't know everything yet, but we're getting closer. The next time that we find this phrase is in Revelation 11, verses 2 to 3. Exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So here we have that same number again, but now 1,260 is in the vicinity of another number, 42 months. And the initial, the initial reaction is to think these are two different things. But no. Because if you take 42 months, you divide by 12, 
it gives you three and a half years. So 42 months is same thing as three and a half years. Now, you know that the, in the Jewish people, they didn't use the solar calendar. They used a lunar calendar. So the days roughly had 30 days. The years had 30, the months had 30 days. So in a year, they would have 360 days. So if you divide 1,360 by the 1,260 by 360, what, what am I saying? Let me reboot. If you divide 1,260 by 360, which is the number of days in the year, you will have again 3.5 years. So 42 months and 1,260 days mean the very same thing. So here we come to see that time times and half a time, 1,260, 42 months, it's talking about the same thing. But the phrase is used one more time in the Bible, and that is Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. In this case, we are not given more information about the 42 months, but we are given more information about the little horn. Because in Daniel chapter 7, it is the little horn who utters blasphemies. It is the little horn who exercises authority for this amount of time. But here we are told that is the beast. And we are also explained what kind of proud words. The proud words are blasphemies. So the Bible explains itself. You just have to be careful, patient, and go for it. So... The little horn was going to be raised from among the ten horns. It was going to uproot three of those horns. And it was going to oppress the holy people for time, times, and half a time, which is the same thing as saying 42 months, which is the same thing as saying 1,260 days, which is the same thing as saying three and a half prophetic years. Now, what power in history fulfilled these characteristics appears in the Western Roman empire after the United empire exists while the divided uh, remnants of the Roman empire are there eliminates three of those kingdoms and then oppresses God's people for 1,260 prophetic days. Well, yeah, the papacy, the Roman church, um, in prophecy, the days are to be understood as years. This is symbolic time. I mean, time times half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days. Who speaks like that? Is, is language is used in a symbolic way. So here we're talking about years. And we can see in history that from the time that the last enemy of the papacy, from the time that the Ostrogoths were eliminated until the time that the papacy was taken out of the way, not not completely, but the, the power was um, put on the reins, it was a time of 1,260 years. In the year 538, the Ostrogod king was subdued to the authority of the Pope, and in the year 1798, the Pope was subdued by the authority of the French Revolution. So the papacy was in charge for 1,260 days. That's another characteristic of the little horn power. Now, the fourth thing that we said was a characteristic of the little horn based on Daniel chapter 7. It has the eyes of a human being, a mouth that speaks boastfully against the Most High. And we already saw in Revelation 13:5 that these proud words are blasphemies. Now, according to the Bible, what is blasphemy? Because the little horn is going to speak blasphemies. So what is blasphemy? Luke chapter, 20, Luke chapter 5, verse 21. Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? According to the Bible, if you are not God, but you say that you can forgive sins, you are blaspheming. Now, Jesus said, I can forgive sins, but we believe that he is God. So that's not blasphemy. But there is another power on earth that says we can forgive sins. We, we say ego te absolvo and that's it. 
According to the Bible, if you are not truly able to do that, then you are blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. John chapter 10 and verse 33 says, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, another way that blasphemy is explained in the Bible is that you are not God, but you say that you are God. And Jesus said that he was God. And they were here trying to kill him because he was saying that he was God. And they were understanding that he was saying that he was God. But when somebody who is not God says that he is God, then that's blasphemy. And again, the Roman Catholic Church has historically said that they are the representatives of Christ on earth. Now, the representative of Christ on earth, according to the Bible, is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. So if you put yourself in the place of God, that is blasphemy. Now, the fourth characteristic that we saw in Romans 7, in Daniel 7, is that this power tries to change the set times and the laws. Now, we could mention so many things that have changed throughout the centuries, but I will mention only two things specifically coming from the law of God. Um, I am reading from the New Jerusalem Bible. This is a Catholic translation. It says, you shall not take yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. So the Bible commands us, even the Catholic Bible commands us not to make images, not to bow to them, not to worship them, not to venerate them, not to any name that people want to give it. We are told not to do it. But then the traditional church throughout history has done it. The fourth commandment, it talks about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath for Yahweh your God. You shall not do any work on that day. Neither you nor your son nor your daughter, your servants, men or women, nor your animals, nor the alien living with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in this contain. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why Yahweh has blessed the Sabbath day and made it sacred. So this Catholic Bible is telling us that the seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. Like all Jewish know, and like all books of encyclopedias and dictionaries will tell you, the seventh day is the Sabbath. And you are supposed to keep it. But according to the Roman church, they don't keep it. They say that somehow it was changed and it was based on their authority that it is changed. So you can see how um, times and laws were changed by this little horn power. Now, question number 13. Does a little horn opposes Christ and substitutes Christ? Well, that was the very definition of Antichrist, right? One who is against Jesus and one who substitutes Jesus. And we can see how throughout history, the Roman church did that, was against Christ in the person of his people. Jesus said, when you do something against these little ones, you are doing against me. And sadly, the Roman Catholic Church has killed many, many, many Christians throughout centuries. It is a sad fact that they acknowledge. And, well, that's reality. We cannot turn away from it. And in many ways, the Roman Catholic Church has supplanted Christ. The one who forgives sins is Christ. The one who represents God on earth is Christ. But many times the church says, no, it is us. So that is the very definition of Antichrist, against Christ and instead of Christ. But now you could tell me, well, pastor, is it not unchristian to identify other Christians as this little horn? Uh, how can you say that the biggest Christian church on earth is Antichrist? Well, it's not me saying it. I'm just reading the prophecy and using the Bible to unpack the prophecy. But we also need to let the Bible interpret itself. I want to read another text for you. This is Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. This is God speaking. And he says, Come out of her, my 
people. We are not reading the whole passage, but this is talking about Babylon. This is talking about the harlot. This is talking about the corrupted church of God, which is also spoken up in the book of Revelation. And we will go over that later. But when God talks about Babylon, when God talks about this prostitute, when God talks about this corrupted Christianity, he still says, my people. Because one thing is the system, one thing is the institution, and a different thing is the individual who loves God and wants to do what is right. When God talks about the same symbol that is described as prostitute, as antichrist, as little horn, he says, come out, my people. He doesn't say, you sinners. He doesn't say, you wicked ones. He doesn't say, you apostates. He doesn't say, you corrupted ones. He says, my people. Because it is a spirit of the Antichrist that has twisted everything. It is a spirit of Satan that has worked in the church of God. Do you remember the words of Paul? That this son of perdition would sit himself in the church of God, proclaiming himself to be God? This is Satan. Weaving his way inside of God's people. So God's people have been attacked. God's people have been deceived through the centuries. And we must identify the system, but we must love the people. <laughs> you talk about me. I am doing a PhD in Tilburg University. Now that's a Catholic institution. It's a Catholic school of theology. My advisor that is the best Christian man I have met. That man has sacrificed of his time, of his money, of so many things to help me get an education. That man is a Christian. That man is a fine Christian and he is a Catholic priest. So, you know, when we come to the Bible and when we understand the prophecies, we need to be able to differentiate between beasts and individuals between symbols and people now question number 13 wasn't daniel told to seal up his book until the time of the end when when will daniel's prophecies be opened to our understanding now again let the bible speak for itself this is daniel chapter 12 verses 4 to 7 you daniel roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one of this bank of the river, one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. All these things will be completed. And here we can say, aha, I know what that means. I know what is that time, times, and half a time. It is the same thing as 42 months. It is the same thing as 1,260 days. It is the same thing as three prophetic years and a half. It is the same thing as 1,260 years. And it happened from the year 538 when the last Aryan kingdom was rid of this earth and the papacy had full access to power until the year 1798 when the french revolution put an end to the power of the papacy throughout all the middle ages so until that time the prophecies were to be sealed but from that time onwards people from all walks of faith and from all walks of life have been going to the prophecies and understanding the prophecies that is why the great awakening came um, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, you know about um, the um, 1844. You know about the Great Awakening and the preaching of the coming of Christ. Now, how long is 1844 after 1798? Many times we don't think about that. We think that 1844 happened a long time after the French Revolution. These things are side by side, 50 years apart, less than. So we need to open our eyes. The prophecy was going to be sealed until that time, from that time onwards, people have been running here and there to understand 
what the Bible says. Now, coming back to the issue of the Antichrist, many Christians today have been misinformed regarding the Antichrist. To believe an untruth about the Antichrist could cause a person to be deceived. What should a person do when new Bible teachings are encountered? Maybe you are a Christian who does not belong to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and you have been taught that the Antichrist is some shady figure that will come at the time of the end because the 70 weeks of Daniel somehow miraculously the last week is chopped off and lifted up by a flating thing and dropped at the end of time. And then you will have the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation and the secret rapture that none of these things appear in the Bible. And then you hear this explanation of Bible prophecy and you feel, oh man, this thing doesn't match. What do I do? You are supposed to do what God's people throughout the ages have done. Book of Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. The Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Go to your Bible and read do you find any reason in the Bible to separate that last week from the 69 weeks in Daniel chapter 9? Is there any reason in the text for that? No, there isn't. Does the Bible talk about a secret rapture? That the coming of Jesus is going to be secret and nobody's going to know about it? No, it doesn't. That's not what the Bible says. So go to the scripture, search the scriptures, and let God speak to you through his word. I have one last question for you today. Are you willing to follow where Jesus leads, even though it might be painful? It is not easy to change ideas that we have held for a long, long time. And I'm not asking you to do that. I'm only asking you to look to the scriptures. I'm only asking you to allow God to speak to your heart and to make a promise to God, Lord, I will follow you wherever you lead me. If I can see it in the scriptures, I will follow it. That's all I am I'm asking from you. Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads? I hope and I pray that you do. Next week, we are going to be talking about messages from space. So if you want to know about that topic, please be sure to join us for worship next week. Again, you can see the past um, studies we have done on our website and on Anchor FM. And I do pray that you are blessed and I do pray that the Lord speaks to your heart and you, you can find truth, healing, salvation, hope in Jesus, the Son of God.